You're listening to TIP. For instance, the house that I'm house hacking currently in Sacramento, the mortgage is about $2,300 or maybe $2,400 per month. And I had a 2.75% interest rate. And then the rental income from the four bedrooms, the four other bedrooms I'm staying in the master and renting out the other four is about $3,600 per month. So there's still a very, very good spread between the mortgage and uh, how much I'm getting in rent for income. In this week's episode, I talk with Ryan Cha about what student rentals and a rent by the room strategy are, how student rentals have been impacted by the pandemic, how to deal with potential damage from student renters, how to screen students as potential tenants, how to find real estate deals, and much, much more. Ryan Chaw graduated with a Doctor of Pharmacy degree in 2015 at the age of 23. And while he loves his job, he wanted to do something more in life. He didn't want to just become that pharmacist who worked at his job until he retired at 65. Instead, he has become a successful real estate investor today and teaches others how to do what he has done. I personally really enjoy learning about unconventional approaches to things. In this case, Ryan has taken an unconventional approach to real estate and found a way to make it work in an area where many other people say real estate investing isn't possible. That's California. If you guys aren't already, be sure to connect with me on social media. My handles on Twitter and Instagram are the Robert Leonard. I'd love to hear from you guys about what you're working on and what you thought of this episode. Now, let's dive right into this week's episode with Ryan Cha. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I welcome back Ryan Chaw. Ryan? Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Robert? What's up? Thanks for inviting me on the show again. We talked back on real estate episode 42 for anyone that's interested in hearing our previous conversation. But for those who haven't heard our that conversation yet, tell us a bit about yourself, your background and your story. Yeah. So I was inspired again to real estate investing from my grandpa. He actually bought up a couple properties in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. In the 1950s, so they were pretty much dirt cheap back then. As we all know, the real estate market boomed and rents went up. And basically, the rental income was able to cover all of his living expenses. So he was able to retire early. And not only that, but help pay for my college tuition and part of my brother's college tuition as well. So I realized that real estate investing is one of the best ways to create generational wealth. So I wanted to get started as soon as possible. I basically got started about eight months after I graduated. I bought my first property, basically a three bed, two bath, single family home. But I bought it in a college town. And I did that because I wanted to rent it out by the bedroom because I would increase my rental income overall. So I would rent out each bedroom for, let's say, like $600, $700 per room. And so that would make me around $2,500, $3,100 for a four bed or five bedroom uh, house. So I basically repeated that process once a year. Um, now I have six properties and it's making $17,510 per month in passive income. I want to dive into the numbers a bit, your strategy. But before we do, did you talk with your grandpa about his kind of background with real estate or did you just see what he was doing and you're like, okay, real estate's the answer. I'm going to kind of go figure this out. Or did he kind of take you under his wing and be your mentor? You know, I wish he did, but I just didn't, I wasn't in the right place at the time when, you know, before he passed away. So unfortunately we didn't really have that discussion, but it was kind of an inspiration because I saw like with my very own eyes, how it was working for him. So I knew it would, it would work for me eventually, as long as I persist and I I figure it out on my own. Right. I did have a mentor though. I did have uh, my real estate agent. He was a very kind to show me basically how the numbers work out. Um, what are some things that you should look for in a house to make sure it's in good condition and a good location, that type of stuff. Did you see anything about the real estate changing hands from when your grandpa passed that kind of has 
had an impact on how you're doing your succession planning with your real estate as you build? One of the biggest things real estate investors often think about once you kind of start to scale a bit is how can I pass this on to generations? A lot of real estate investors want to build generational wealth. So I'm curious if you saw anything happen to your grandpa's portfolio, unfortunately, after he passed, that taught you something that you kind of are able to apply to your own portfolio. Yeah. So first off, what's really cool is that it gets the real estate gets passed on to your sons and daughters on a step-up basis. So basically what happens is uh, they inherit the property and they don't have to pay the capital gains taxes. Uh, another strategy a lot of real estate investors use is the, oh man, I'm forgetting the te- uh, 1031 exchange, right? So basically what they do is they buy a more expensive property and then they sell their current property at the same time to avoid paying taxes. And then you can basically do that over and over and over until basically you pass away. And then your again, your uh, daughters and sons inherit it on a step up basis. So they don't have to pay taxes on those gains. Yeah. They call that the swap till you drop method where you basically just kind of keep upgrading every property. You swap one property for the other. You keep swapping and swapping until unfortunately you drop. And then, but you could buy say a hundred thousand dollar property at the first one. And then by the time you're done, you could have a million dollar property and all of those gains are tax-free for your children or whoever you end up passing those properties onto. Yeah, exactly. It's an amazing strategy. And it's there's there's just a lot of benefits. Like there's tax benefits and real estate investing that you mentioned. Uh, there's also there's something called depreciation where you can de- have this like phantom deduction basically to account for the wear and tear that the IRS considers uh, could occur on the house. So you basically deduct a certain amount of the property price every single year just from your income. Um even though there is no there's not much wear and tear on the property. There's also appreciation. You make money through that. You make money through every month by the cash flow. And then you make money by equity pay down because the tenants are paying down your mortgage. What has changed with your portfolio and or your strategy since we last talked? And what have you done that has allowed you to keep up your cash flow during COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. Because when COVID hit, I was kind of panicking. All the colleges went to online. So I was like, oh man, what am I going to do when people want to cancel their lease? And sure enough, I started getting emails saying, hey, can I cancel my lease? You know, the colleges went online. Can we work this out? Right. So there's a couple of strategies I used. One, obviously, I increased my marketing. So that's the most important thing. Increase my volume of interested tenants. So I started advertising more. I started calling, getting on calls one on one with my existing uh, tenants who were on the lease. And I also got on call with uh, tenants who are interested in staying at the house. I just expanded my marketing to like campus bulletin boards, more Facebook groups, Facebook housing groups. And then that was number one. Number two, I offered some discounts for some people who were uh, wanting to basically end the lease. I said, hey, if you're willing to stay in it, I'll give you like a $100 discount. And you know, basically, you'll stay for the, the end of the lease, or you can sublease it or whatever you have options, right? So um, I basically kind of worked it out. And I was able to keep a majority of my tenants. And not only that, I was able to fill up all my bedrooms still. And I was making I think around $9,300 per month instead of the usual $10,755 per month I was making at the time. So it was like a $1,000, $1,500 pay cut. But at the same time, I was making so much uh, cash flow just by renting by the bedroom that I was still making a, a good profit on that. So I didn't worry too much you know, when COVID hit. I mean, I worried at the beginning, but then after I implemented the strategies and the solutions, you know, everything kind of worked itself out. And then after that, the year after that, I was able to, uh, the classes came back to in-person. So I was able to find people to rent at the full rent. Would you have been able to transition to younger professionals? There are people who are maybe a year or two, three years out of college that needed a place to stay? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually did take on some young professionals. So I had, I took on some people who were working at the local medical center hospital. I also took on some alumni, some recent grads. And as long as they're able to prove that, you know, they have a job and making consistent income from that job, or if they have a job offer letter that states their salary, you know, I was okay taking in those tenants. But that, yeah, that's a very good point. So I did pivot a little bit. I usually target solely college students, but then I pivoted my strategy a little bit to take on recent grads and medical workers as well. It's interesting to hear you talk about the marketing piece because 
Well, for a couple of reasons. One, I don't really have to do that too, too much with my portfolio. Really, I just list it on Zillow or realtor.com and I have a lot of people that want to rent, rent my places anyway. And then the second thing is just not a lot of real estate investors really talk about that. So I'm curious, do you think you have to do the marketing component because you're using a little bit of a unique strategy where you're renting by the bedroom? Yeah, exactly. For sure. So there's some property managers out there. There are some that'll actually advertise for you for rent by the bedroom, but not all of them. A lot of them will want to rent out as a whole unit and they won't touch the rent by the bedroom kind of method. Uh, so I basically use the prime method for advertising. I, and I do my own marketing and advertising because I like to talk to the tenants, kind of get to know them, see what type of tenant they are. So the P stands for P and prime stands for placement of advertisements. So you need to make sure, of course, you place your ads where the target tenants hang out. If you place your ads where they don't hang out, it's basically like fishing in an empty pond. You want to basically put it right in front of wherever they're hanging out, right in front of their faces. So R stands for reviewing social media. So after they contact you from those listings, um, you're going to want to look through their Facebook profile, Instagram profile, and kind of see, gauge what type of tenant they are from the pictures. So if they have any like smoking, alcohol, drugs, raves, uh, a lot of partying, that type, then I usually try to stay away from that type of tenant. The I stands for identifying the type of tenant. So is this a tenant who's constantly asking for a cheaper deal? Are they hard to communicate with? Are they very picky? Are they asking for things they shouldn't be asking for? That type of deal. Because if they're picky, you know, at the very beginning, they're probably going to be picky throughout the lease agreement as well. M stands for measure responsiveness. So I find that the more responsive a tenant is, the more responsible professional they usually turn out to be. So if somebody who gets back to me, let's say I have late rent and I'm asking them to pay the late rent, somebody who gets back to me right away will be a lot better than somebody who wakes like two weeks, three weeks, and then finally gets back to me. I want somebody who's very responsive. Then the E stands for insuring proof of income. So though it's not the students paying the rent, it's actually the parents paying the rent. I need to make sure that the parents are making a good enough income. So I ask for bank statements, credit score, pay stubs, or sometimes the students, they have student loans or financial aid. Any of those documents will be fine just to prove that they can afford the rent or to pay the rent. The social media component of your marketing strategy is interesting. It's actually one I implement myself. I, I do some Airbnb and I just recently had a renter that applied to rent for my property on Airbnb and he didn't have any reviews. And that's like the biggest thing when you're screening a tenant on Airbnb is you look at the reviews and he didn't have any reviews and he was relatively new. His account was relatively new on Airbnb and he was relatively young. So it's just like a couple like yellow flags that I wasn't really sure about. And so I just asked them, I said, Hey, can you send me your social media profiles? You know, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever. And and I checked them out. And that was kind of one of my ways that I was able to do due diligence without really having any other way to do it in a sense. So I, I think that social media component's interesting. And, you know, I even think about it myself is when I go to make a post on social media, I think, you know, what is this going to be perceived as in, as in market? Not necessarily because I'm trying to rent from somebody, but if my renters see this, what would they think of it or, or anything like that? You know, if anybody sees this, what would they think? And I'm very conscious of that because people like you and I, and even our renters are going to be looking up our social media. So people need to be, be a little bit cautious of, of what they're posting on social. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. That's a, it's an awesome strategy for sure. If you just do that extra due diligence. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. 
And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. You mentioned that your your grandpa was buying in the San Francisco market, and obviously that's really expensive. Where are you buying these days? Where are your six properties? Yeah, so I have a couple in Stockton, and I have in Sacramento, California, as well. So I, I purchased near like the pharmacy school that I went next to, and I also purchased near Sacramento State students. So those are the target markets for me. And I'm not super familiar with those markets, but are they relatively expensive compared to other parts of the country? No, not too bad. I would say uh, when I was first starting out for the first like four properties I purchased, uh, most of the ones in Stockton were around 300,000. Um, and then the ones in Sacramento, uh, they're like 400, 500,000. But uh, nowadays, obviously the market has gone a little bit crazier. So I mean, it's been that way across the nation, of course, but um I would say houses in Sacramento are now like 500,000 or so. And then Stockton is around 400,000. Um, but you can still make the numbers work with this strategy, which is really cool. If you find a house that has a very large square footage, and then you can put in like a four, fifth, or even six bedroom, your upper limit for how much you can purchase the property for actually goes way up. Like if I can get a house for 500 to maybe $540,000 in Sacramento, and make it a five-bedroom house, then the numbers work out and I'm making actually quite a bit of cash flow. For instance, the house that I'm house hacking currently in Sacramento, the mortgage is about $2,300 or maybe $2,400 per month. And I had a 2.75% interest rate. And then the rental income from the four bedrooms, the four other bedrooms I'm staying in the master and renting out the other four is about $3,600 per month. So there's still a very, very good spread between the mortgage and uh, how much I'm getting in rental income. It's such a good example of how you can get creative because those properties probably wouldn't make very good rentals if you just bought them as traditional rentals and just put one tenant in there. It probably wouldn't make sense. But And people will say, oh, there's no deals out there. There's no properties to buy. But you know there are different ways that you can get creative. If you do a buy the room strategy, like you said, I mean, your, your rental income is so much higher. And like you mentioned, you can buy a much more expensive property and the st- numbers still make sense. Yeah. And plus I'm living in it too, which is awesome. Did you live in all six of them? So have you been doing this for six years and just moved from one to the next to the next? Or did you just live in a couple of them? What did that look like? No, I just uh, house hacked the latest one. Previous ones, I actually kind of basically stayed under my parents for a bit while I purchased all these rental properties. And so were you required to put 20, 25% down on each of them? Yes, that's about right. Yeah, uh, let's see. Yeah, 20, 25% down mm-hmm. for all my investment properties. That's true. Yeah, what was really cool is um, my first property um, I bought for 262000 and it went up to 430000 Now that's about $168,000 in appreciation. So I was able to take out something called a HELOC, a home equity line of credit. I took out 100000 and 50000 of that I was able to use toward a down payment on the fourth property because you can use HELOCs toward down payments. And then the other 50000 I used that toward the fifth property. And so I kind of joked that when I bought that first property, I basically bought three properties at the same time. It's the same amount of cash that I put in, but then I utilized that equity um, and, and drew that out further to, the, to scale my portfolio faster. Were you living in the property that you got the HELOC on? No, I did not. The HELOC on the investment property, yeah. 
So my rates were a little bit higher. I think it was like 5.5% or maybe even six when I took it out. No, I think it was 5.5. But yeah, especially with the Federal uh, Reserve kind of lowering interest rates and everything that actually dropped down quite a bit. What's really cool about HELOC is you don't have to pay interest on it until you take the money out. So it's kind of like a credit card. If it's, you know, if credit card is zero balance, you pay no money on that zero balance. Versus when you do take it out, like let's say I took out that 50,000, well, I'm only taking like paying a 5% interest on that 50,000. In theory, as long as your properties keep appreciating, you could essentially take another HELOC on another property and then use that for the down payment on your your seventh or eighth property and then just continue to scale that way. Exactly. Yes. The only thing you might run into is the debt to income ratio. So that has to be below, uh, I forget what the exact rules are, but usually it has to be at least below 50% or so. But what's really cool about this method is they actually do count the income towards the debt to income ratio. And because we're making like double the normal amount of rental income, my debt to income ratio has been actually very, very low compared to, I would say, like other real estate investors who rent out the whole house versus rent by the room. And I think last time they were able to run my debt to income ratio, they did a 75% of the total income count counted. Yeah, that's pretty similar to what I'm finding with lenders is they'll run usually 45 to 50% on your DTI. And then typically for the rentals, they'll take 75, maybe 80% of the the income and count it towards your income for your loan applications. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. So when you're, when you're considering using HELOC to purchase property, let's just say you took out that 50,000, you're going to go buy the rental. Is your calculation basically saying, okay, my payment on this HELOC is going to be X dollars as long as my profit on this property that I'm going to purchase is more and ideally significantly more than what that loan payment is, then I can use the profit from that property to cover the loan and then I can take any extra for myself. Is that kind of how you think about it? Yeah, exactly. So let's say I took out 50,000, right? 5% of that is probably what, 2,500 or something like that per year. And so if I'm purchasing a property that's making 3100 or you know 3700 dollars per year well i'm going to you know i i basically pay off that heloc interest on the first month right or sorry i should say 33000 to 3700 per month i i apologize i think i said per year but um yeah you basically pay it off in the first month plus you gather the appreciation on the property um you get the equity pay down and then the cash flow right College students are notoriously risky tenants, I guess you could say, with damage and partying, et cetera. So, you know, we talked about kind of looking at social media profiles, things like that. But what else do you do to manage the risk of college students partying and damaging the property or just any other, you know, activities that college students take in, take part in? That's a very good question. So the key is really tar- the target college that you, you invest in. So I invest in colleges that are usually more, um, they're tougher to get into. You usually need like a 4.0 GPA in high school. So these are people who are very studious. You know, they got really high SAT scores, ACT scores or whatnot. And they also um, have some professional programs as well. So like medicine, like medical doctors, pharmacy, dentistry, nursing. Um, those are the type of students that I, I typically target. So people who are a little bit more mature, older during graduate school, you know, if possible. And if I bring in those tenants, at least even if I just bring in like two tenants from that pool and then maybe like two sophomores, um, usually the dynamic works out so that the house becomes mainly a study house. There's other things I do to kind of discourage partying as well. One of them is I don't have any TVs at the house. So to me, like TVs kind of encourages that, you know, sit back, drink a beer type of culture. So I discourage that. Um, I try to, um, again, uh, repurpose some of the, the bed, uh, rooms. So if there's like an extra family room or living room, um, what I'll do is I'll repurpose that as the fourth or the fifth bedroom. So there's a little bit less common space to discourage kind of like party type culture and having like a huge house party type of deal. Yeah, that seems like a good strategy to me, but on the flip side, I know Harvard has some pretty good parties sometimes. So I guess it's not always it's not always a shoe in, right? Yeah. So that that's the key. Like you know, always uh, get a full security deposit. So like I do one and a half times months for the security deposit. So if something were to break, 
um, during a party or whatnot, then I could use that to replace it. I've actually personally never had to, just for those thinking of getting into this space, I've never had to use a security deposit to place something. Uh, there's only one exception where the tenant leaned back in his chair a bit too far and then he broke a window. So obviously the security deposit was used to repair that window. But other than that case, I've really never kept security deposits. I've never had to. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think generally speaking, your strategy is really good. I think it's probably one of the best ways that you can mitigate that risk of college students. I think, of course, there's still the risk. College students, no matter how good the school is, there's still a potential for it. But I think overall, you're, you're definitely minimizing your risk. Now, you, one of the other things with, with college students is they're not really known for having the most money, especially you know, during grad school or really just any, any time you're in college, really. So how do you make sure that your tenants are not only able to afford rent, but actually pay you on time consistently? I know we talked about parents and things like that. Walk us through that, that process a little bit more. So I think what's key is to see that there's some savings in either the parents' uh, bank or the student's bank. Because even if you have like a high paying job, if you get fired from your job, you can't pay the rent unless you have savings. So I usually look for a good, you know, somewhere between 7000 8000 10000 in savings, if possible. If not, then I want to see um, them taking out like student loans or financial aid, because a lot of students can use student loans toward room and board. And so that's, uh, they usually have a typical allowance toward uh, paying the rent for that. The other thing is, like I said, financial aid. So some students basically get a full ride to college plus tuition. Through room and board. What's actually interesting is I have a story about that. I have a tenant who actually during COVID, he uh, had financial aid that covered the rent and he never moved into the house for the whole year, which was crazy. And they're totally fine with it because they weren't footing the bill. It was actually the financial aid, you know, uh, allowance that the, the kid got. He never moved into the house because he just wanted to stay with family during COVID. And he was paying the rent every single month for the whole year. And it was coming out of basically the financial aid that he was allowed. One of the other interesting things about your story is that you work not just one, but two jobs and you're self-managing your six properties with anywhere from three to five tenants at each one. So you're managing, you know, it sounds like six properties, but then you're really managing, say, 12 to 15 tenants, which is, you know, essentially as if you had 12 or 15 units for, for most normal people. So how are you able to do all of that while keeping your jobs? Yeah, so I have like 28 tenants now, I believe. So quite a handful, right? What I did is, you know, I'm, I'm working part-time now, but before, like you mentioned, I was working two jobs. I was working 14-hour shifts. And I basically had to create systems to make sure that when something happened on the house, it kind of worked itself out. Um, there's something I call tenant empowerment, which is really important. I see the tenant as kind of part of my team, right? I asked them for help in like showing the rentals to incoming prospective tenants. So I don't have to go over there and do the whole walkthrough myself. It's the existing tenants that can do that, right? Um, so I empower them to kind of solve uh, problems. I, I kind of walk them through the process or I'll send them an email with instructions on how to troubleshoot something. And basically, you know, they follow the instructions and, you know, the, the problem gets worked out. I also have a team of contractors. I can count on. So if something breaks down, like, you know, the toilet or there's a broken appliance, I can just text my contractor or let's say this, the tenant texts me, I just forward it to the contractor. And then they basically let themselves in with the lockbox, uh, do their job themselves out, lock the door, give me the bill. And then I'll give um, I'll write them a check. And it's pretty much all automated at this point because I took the time to really establish systems and establish like protocols for when something occurs. And just to give you a quick example, actually, when I first got started in this, I had a lot of tenant versus tenant conflict, or I wouldn't say a lot, but I had it every once in a while. And what I did originally was I would call up the other tenant that they complained about and say, hey, dude, the, the other guy's complaining you know, about you. And then that would just escalate the situation because now the tenant's like, I'm not going to do what he told me. You know, He's talking behind my back. He's telling the landlord about me, You know, telling on me essentially. He's a fink, whatever, right? So it kind of just escalated after that. Um, what I do nowadays, which I find very, very um, effective, is I talk to the tenant who complained and said, hey, you know, why don't you have a face-to-face -face discussion with the guy you're complaining about? Um, tell him why you're upset. 
tell them, okay, or talk it over. Like, what are you going to do going forward? Come up with an actionable plan and then implement that plan and then see where it goes from there. And then after that, you can talk to me. Um, ever since I've done that, I've never had them come back and say and start, you know, complaining again because they basically, I empowered them to work it out among themselves versus like, you know, behind the back type of deal. And that ever since I've done that, it was, it was a very effective way of managing the tenant versus tenant conflict. Do you take the same approach when it comes to common areas, bathrooms, kitchens, et cetera? Or do you just like you just kind of let them figure it out themselves or do you have set rules for the houses? Yeah, yeah. I basically, you know, empower them to kind of create their own um, trash schedule, for example. I have suggestions for them, but they're just recommendations, right? I'll basically give them a list of move-in items. You know, I'll send them a welcome email along with instructions to basically make sure the house is upkept well and all of that. But then it's up to them to basically handle it from there. And I'm not too worried about maybe some dirty dishes and whatnot, right? As long as the, the place is clean by the end by move out, I also have move out instructions like remove all your food from the fridge, all that before the next tenant comes in, vacuum the place. And as long as they kind of take care of it by then, you know, I'm not too worried about what happens in between. The other thing I do is I have an, a maid come in once annually to basically do a deep cleaning of the whole house. You live local to your properties? No, actually Stockton's about an hour and 15 minutes from me. So I manage everything remotely. I hardly ever go down there. I would say maybe once a year just to do the home walkthrough and the close on the house. But as far as managing it, I don't have to do that because again, I have systems in place. I have boots on the ground with my contractors, right? And I think anyone could, could do this. Uh, have people that I teach that do um, these rentals, the student housing method out of state, and it works just fine. As long as they have boots on the ground, they have a team in place and have systems in place. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you have the right systems and processes in place. Are you going to scale to other states outside of California eventually? Probably. Yeah. Actually, I'll um, be going out of the state probably in like two years or so. I plan to buy like two more properties using other people's money. Uh, This next year, I'm going to implement basically partnerships. What I'm going to do is have basically relatives or medical doctors I know from my hospital invest with me and they put that up the down payment for a house and I'll pay them like $1,300 per month for the first six months. And then they also get like a percent of the equity, like maybe one or 2% kind of royalty as well. And so I promise like an 8% return, no matter what, that's a personal guarantee for me. Even if the house goes under whatever, I still pay them the 8% for the full, full six years plus the royalty. And yeah, I mean, I'm just uh, putting out the offer and then I'll probably be doing it, uh, implementing it around May of next year. With a structure like that, how are you going to finance it? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's ways, there's kind of creative ways to do that. If you keep the money in an account for two months or three months or so, then we call that the seasoning period where basically any money that's kind of in that account after those two months is kind of considered your money because what lenders do is they only look at like the last two months and that's what we call the seasoning period, right? So, um, you know, as long as it's in there before then, you know, it's, it's usually valid to use that money towards like a down payment. So what you're going to do is have them give you the money two, three, four months before you know you're going to want to acquire the property. So if you're going to do this in May, maybe they give you the money in January, February. And then because that money has already seasoned in your account, you can still get traditional financing. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yes, exactly. That's correct. Um, of course, I'm going to talk it over with the CPA and everything and, and the uh, real estate attorney as well. But uh, most likely that's the route I'll be going. Do you know yet how you're going to handle the deed? Are you just going to quick claim it after you purchase it? That's a good question. I, I haven't gone to that point yet, but I mean, I'm open for suggestions. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of going through the same thing right now, a similar situation. So I think one of the best bets, the only issue when you do something like that is that due on sale clause. It, when you transfer the deed does become what they consider a sale. And so in theory, the bank could call your loan due in full if they wanted to. I've talked to a couple mm-hmm. of attorneys and according to the attorneys, that pretty much never happens as long as you don't default on your loan. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a gray area, but it's just one of those things to definitely keep in mind. Yeah. You know, there's actually something called due on sale clause insurance as well, which might be something 
to look into. There was a guy who specialized in this who went on the Bigger Pockets podcast, and he, you know, he said, "Yeah, there's due on sale clause insurance, which will basically reimburse you if the due on sale clause is evoked." That's really interesting. I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something to look into for sure. Since I I haven't been commuting to my W two job, which I, I don't have a W two job anymore. I haven't been listening to podcasts as much, so I. I used to listen to the Bigger Pockets podcast every every single episode. I haven't in a while, so I'm gonna have to go back and, and try <laughs> yeah, and find yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah, that was a very interesting one. I could uh, shoot you the link after and maybe put it in the notes for yeah, those who are interested in do yeah. on sale. Yeah, we'll stuff. put it in the yeah. show notes for anybody that's interested. You have a mistake or two that you say has cost you over thirty thousand dollars. Talk to us a bit about what those mistakes were and tell us a little bit about what you've learned from them. Okay, so those are interesting stories. Uh, this was my first house that I purchased. It was over 100 years old, so I probably should have expected this. But I didn't do my full due diligence. For instance, I didn't do a sewage inspection uh, that would have caught the um, what happened later. I didn't really look at the HVAC in too much detail, how old it was, um, how effective it was. I didn't test any of that. I didn't have any contractors assess any of that. Uh, but what happened uh, after I purchased the property about I would say six months after I get this call from one of my tenants to say, he goes like, dude, um, it's like at 10 PM on a weekend, right? Perfect timing. He says, dude, there's a sewage coming out of the sink and it's like all over the kitchen floor. Uh, the shower is also backed up with sewage, but it's really gross. And it's, it smells like, you know, it smells like crap. Right. So I had to, you know, I was like, what do I do? Right. So I had to call up um, some people to clean up the mess. Obviously, they charge a premium. Eventually, we stuck a camera down the sewage pipe, and we found that the tree roots totally bursted the pipe. The whole pipe was broken into. There are roots sticking up out in several areas. I even have pictures. It was really gross. So I had to replace the whole sewage line with PVC piping, which cost about $7,000 because it was a, a very long line. And then not only that, I, it was a couple thousand to do all the cleanup. I had to put in a sump pump to you know, get some of the sewage out of the, the basement that leaked into the basement. Um, so it was a mess. And then not only that, during the summer, what happened is the a tenant called me and said, hey, it's like 10 p.m. tonight and it, it's like 90 something degrees in the house and the AC is not, not getting it any lower than that. So I was like, oh man, shoot. So basically the AC was non-existent. So I replaced, I had to replace the whole system that was $15,000. Now, if I did my due diligence ahead of time, like did those inspections, right? But easily just stick camera down the pipe, right, to find that sewage rake, then I will have saved myself thousands of dollars because the uh, seller would have been able to either compensate me in closing costs or write me a check for it or do it themselves, et cetera, right? Uh, but I, I was new at the time, I didn't know. So luckily, I kept the house. This is the house that went up from 262000 to $430,000. So that $30,000 that I lost, it was just like a small blip, right? And the vast ocean of, you know, appreciation, cash flow, whatever. Um, what's really interesting, though, is how I handled it, too, because I was 20, I owed $23,000 or $22,000, and I only had $7,000 in the bank. So I'm like, what do I do, right? I owe more than I have in the bank. So what I did is I uh, partnered. I I went to uh, my dad and said, hey, if you're willing to put up this $22,000 and an extra $1,500 to put in an extra bedroom in this house, um, I'll give you the, the rent for that bedroom for the rest of your life. So basically what happened ended up happening, we made the fixes. Um, that extra bedroom was making $550 per month once we got a tenant in. And he gets paid back in about three years or so. And after that, he makes uh, about $6,600 or something like this per year which is about a 29% or 28.5% return on initial cash invested for him. And he gets that for the rest of his life, $550 per month. So it was a win-win situation for both of us. And you know, it, it worked out. What happens if you want to sell that property though? In terms of like pricing or no, in, terms in terms of, of like your, dad, your dad's money, you know, he, he's thinking he's going to get this for life, right? What if you want to sell it tomorrow? Yeah. So if I sell it, I still, again, we, we didn't have a contract or we, we hashed out the details. So I do, I would still be paying him $550 per month, even if it was sold. So I, I gave him that guarantee, like guaranteed $550 per month, no strings attached, that type of thing. So why was it only $1,500 to add an extra bedroom? Were you just like doing some renovations to like a room that already existed and made it a bedroom? Cause I'm, you can't do an addition for $1,500. It's, uh, it's, it was very cheap. The contractor that I used, he is a general contractor, but 
Um, he kind of gives us discounts because we do a lot of projects with him. But he, yeah, he charged us fifteen hundred because it was basically drywall. Uh, I would say either seven feet or ten feet of drywall, and then it was just putting up that door, and that was it to cre- create the extra bedroom. It's not like adding an addition to the outside of the house. It's more of like an interior uh, addition, wall addition type of deal, and so that didn't cost uh, too much actually. And you know, again, uh, work with contractors that you trust. Get different bids. Get at least three bids. I would say for any projects, any major projects, and then you can kind of talk with them and see their expertise and then choose the one that is the best deal for you. That's another example of how people can get creative. You know, people always talk about that they can't find deals, but if you go to buy a house that has a little bit of extra space, you could turn that into an extra bedroom for $1,500. And now you're going to say, you said you're collecting $550 a month from that. That's a three month payback period. I mean, that's a Exactly. That's a great, a great investment. And if people, yeah. people just look to surface level and say, oh, there's no deals out there or everybody's buying deals too quickly. And maybe you just need to get a little creative and look for some, some ways to do things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you can buy a house that has a family room and a living room, usually students don't need the extra family room. So you just make that a bedroom, right? That's the easiest way to do it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. What is your plan with these properties when you do want to exit? Do you plan on just selling to a traditional homeowner? Because I mean, the probability of somebody coming along that wants to buy this as a student rental is probably going to be pretty slim. I mean, I suppose it's possible, but you're probably going to sell to a traditional homeowner. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, pretty much. So what I would do is I might take out the, you know, a wall addition if I added a bedroom. It only costs a, you know, a couple, like a thousand, couple thousand or so. And then I'll if they want it, you know, if they want to keep it, that's fine. If they don't want it, then, you know, we could take it out. Then I would just sell it to a single family, basically just keep it, you know, how I basically bought it, you know, as a single family home. A common concern of new investors or even those looking to get started in real estate is having so much debt 
how do you mentally deal with having the debt that is associated with rental portfolio? And I mean, you're using HELOC, so you're even more, you know, arguably levered than some other investors. So talk to us a little bit how you deal with that mentally. Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like I have, I think I owe like $600,000, $700,000. So I'm technically $700,000 in debt, but um, it's actually, it's your friend as a real estate investor because that's, that's debt that's being paid off by somebody else. So it's, it's good debt, right? And what's really cool is um, you're using leverage. You know, you put up the 20%, but the bank is putting up the other 80%. Your returns are much greater for the cash you invest. Let's say I'm just going to take a quick scenario. Hopefully this is simple enough, but let's say we bought a $100,000 house and we put a 20% down payment on it. That means you're in for $20,000. That's your cash invested in the property. The bank pays the other 80,000. Now let's say that $100,000 property goes up 3% in the appreciation in the first year, which is actually a pretty normal appreciation rate. That means you get $3,000 um, return that $3,000 in appreciation is yours when you sell the property or cash out refi or whatever you do. And so you divide the 3,000, uh, your initial 20,000 investment, that's a 15% return. So if you just plug in the calculator, 3,000 divided by 20,000, it should be about 15% return on the cash you invested. Now the property went up 3%, but you're making a, a five fold return, a 15% return. So that's the power of leverage in real estate. When the property goes up a little bit, you know, your actual return on cash invested goes up a lot more. How do you think about your strategy when you consider a potential recession that, that comes? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. You know, real estate tends to be a lot more stable compared to the stock market. So if you invest in stocks, honestly, you should be comfortable investing in real estate. Um, real estate does require a little bit more skills, obviously, but the, the, it's a little bit more steady, right? It's uh, there might be like a crash or, or like kind of a um, a recession, but then it it's kind of like a you know upgoing line like this. So it's um there might be like some hills and valleys or whatnot, but overall in the long run, if you hold on to your real estate, it'll go up. And if it does crash, that's actually a great time to buy more, right? If you purchase in two thousand eight, there's people who would um two times, three times, four times their investment by now. I know somebody who bought a house in, um, I think it was Roseville, California, and they bought it for, I think it was around 200000 back in 2008, right? And now it's worth over $900,000. So 700000 over, what is that? 12, what was it? 14 years, 13 years? I mean, that's, that's a ton of money per year, right? What's interesting about your strategy too is that you're focusing on students and studies have shown that the enrollment rate at colleges actually goes up during recession. People are like, okay, you know, I'm either out of the job market or if I want to keep my job or whatever, I need to further my education. And so a lot of people actually go back to school. And so if you look at some studies, it seems like enrollment rates actually increase. So for you, I mean, in theory, your, your properties might even do better in a recession. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, what's really important is as long as you make the cash flow, you know, if you're positive cash flowing a a good amount of money, you just wait through that recession. You wait out the recession because you're still going to get money every single month, right? It's not like colleges are all going to shut down and all the students are going to leave or anything like that. I mean, my college has been around since 1859 or something like that. So uh, was that 150 years, 170 years or something like that? So yeah, it's not going to shut down anytime soon or anything like that. So yeah, during a recession, just hold on to it and buy more. I suppose you may have some more people that commute to college rather than paying to live there. But I mean, I think generally speaking, I think during a recession, I think student rentals should be a better performing asset than, than maybe some others like Airbnb or, or something like that. But what has been the most influential right. book in your life? And I, I don't think it necessarily has to be your favorite because I think I have a, a favorite book and then I have an influ- most influential book. So tell me what, what has been your most influential book? Wow, man. I know people say this all the time, but it has to be either Rich Dad, Poor Dad or The Real Estate Millionaire by Gary Keller, something along those millionaire lines, or The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Those have been the most impactful because they talk about, especially Gary Keller, he talks about creating teams and systems because that's what uh, real estate uh, investing is all about. It's a business, right? So if you create the teams, the system, the processes and put those in place, it basically is a self-running machine for you. It's on autopilot and it's making this 
passive income that you get every single month that you spend like, like for me, I spend like less than an hour a week on this stuff because I, I might do my marketing during April or whatever. Um, but after that, it's pretty much all hands off for the most part. I just afford some text messages to my contractor. I write some checks and that's about it. Yeah. My personal favorite real estate book is The Millionaire Real Estate Investor from Gary Keller too. I think. Oh, that, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that's the best real estate book. Anytime somebody asks me like, Hey, I want to get into real estate. What's the first book I should read? I usually recommend that book. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. It's a little bit more practical too. Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a lot of theory. It's, it's not so as theory. practical. It's good for mindset, but I think Gary Keller, um, he really lays it out for you. And there's actually charts in there that shows you the power of the, the numbers, the actual numbers. If you bought a house for this much, and it went up this much and your rent increases this much. This is what it's going to look like in 10, 20, 15 years or whatever. I think those charts are really awesome. Yeah, exactly. You hit the nail on the head. For me, you know, I like Rich Dad Poor Dad. It's a good book, but I don't love it as much as some other people because it is just theory. And for me as a person, I like the tactical stuff. I like you, you know, tell me, tell me this is what I should do. This is how to do it. Show me some numbers, et cetera. And Rich Dad Poor Dad doesn't do that at all. It's not a how-to. It doesn't give any numbers really. It's just all theory. And for some people, that's a mindset shift that they really need. But for me, the, the tactical piece of the millionaire real estate investor was was more beneficial for me, at least. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I agree. <laughs> Ryan, before we, we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guests ask me a question. So what question do you have for me? Oh, yeah, definitely. So, you know, we're recording this right before the new year. I'm curious, what are your plans for 2022 for expanding your portfolio, maybe selling some off or what are your plans? Yeah, so this is your plans. This is interesting. It's probably going to be a little bit of a surprise to you. Honestly, my focus is actually to build an RV rental portfolio. So I have one one RV rental right now and it's doing really, really well. And I think that I'm going to focus a lot on that. You know, I think I don't know exactly. I got to still kind of build my goals around what exactly I want that to look like. I don't know if I want it to be, I don't know if I want to buy two, three, four, five more RVs myself. I don't know if I want to partner with some people and let them purchase the RV and, and I kind of do the property management piece for them. Or, you know, I'm teaching a course on how to invest in RV rentals. So I'll focus on that a bit. And then, of course, I will still be buying rentals as well. I'll continue to do my long distance. But from a real estate perspective, outside of RVs, you'll probably see me focus mostly on either buying a small apartment building, something between, say, seven and 25 units, and then, or a Airbnb. Those are kind of my two focuses on the real estate side. Awesome. Yeah, they say uh, the riches are in the niches, right? Common phrase. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping with the RV stuff. <laughs> Ryan, where, where can the audience who have enjoyed this conversation go to connect with you and, and find you on the internet? Yeah, so you can uh, reach out to me. I have a free PDF guide for those interested in student housing, the student housing strategy, or just getting started in general um, with real estate investing, some mindset things. It's at www.newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide. Newbie is spelled N-E-W-B-I-E. Again, that's www.newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide. I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking it out. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. Awesome. This was an awesome episode. Thanks again, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.